On the Wing, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., where you will hear the latest releases in folk, rock, world, jazz, and much more. Only on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation for 25 years partnering with donors and nonprofits in communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and coming up next is Talk of the Towns with guest host Natalie Springell. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major out educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us here in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. This is Natalie Springle of the University of Maine Sea Grant, guest host for this program, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. This morning, our topic is aquaculture, including trends and opportunities for fishermen and oysters, or fishermen and others on the coast of Maine. Maine's working waterfront provides a variety of human activities, transportation, fishing and fish processing, boat building, recreation, and more recently, aquaculture, growing various marine species that humans like to eat. On today's show, we'll gain an understanding of the status of aquaculture in Maine, finfish, shellfish, and even seaweed, and maybe freshwater species. We'll explore trends and opportunities, especially for fishermen, to diversify the ways they might earn their livelihood on the water. And we'll learn what our neighbors to the north are doing to develop aquaculture in the Canadian Maritimes, looking at what lessons can be applied back in our home waters. In the studio with me today are three folks who know a whole lot about aquaculture in Maine. We have Dana Morris of the University of Maine Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension. Morning. We have Ad Adam Campbell, North Haven Oyster Company and a commercial fisherman. Good morning. And we have Sebastian Bell of the Maine Aquaculture Association. Good morning, Natalie. Thanks for coming in, guys. Um, let's start with Sebastian. Sebastian, <coughs> you work with all kinds of aquaculture farmers and represent them through your work of the, with the Maine Aquaculture Association. Tell us a little bit about what all is farmed in Maine and where and a little bit about how. Sure. Well, thank you for having me on the show this morning. I appreciate it. Um, we have on any given year in the state of Maine between 140 and 150 aquaculture farms in the state. And they go all the way from uh, Elliott down in the southern part of the state right up to the Canadian border in Cobscook Bay. Um, and they also go inland. We have uh, freshwater uh, operations as well. Our members, and we're a members association, kind of like the Farm Bureau, um, we grow... Um, both animals and finfish and plants, as you alluded to. And um, some of our products are seasonal. Some of them are year-round. We, we do have uh, farmers that operate year-round uh, in the marine environment. Uh, on any given year, our farm gate sales are about between 80 and $100 million spread across all the different products that we grow. We also have some companies that um, actually take aquaculture products and turn them into other kinds of products, so biomedical products, for example, um, kind of more biotech type stuff as well. So it's a pretty diverse um, industry. It's certainly, I think, one of the most diverse in the country. Um, and we are often, if you look at us from the national perspective, Maine is typically either number one or number two um, in terms of marine aquaculture in the country on any given year. Great, thanks, Sebastian. Um, Dana, you just returned from sabbatical um, from the University of Maine, where you looked particularly at shellfish aquaculture, um, in large part in the Canadian Maritimes. 
Um, tell us a little bit about what you learned and what you think some of the uh, differences are across the border with shellfish aquaculture compared to back here in Maine. Okay, thanks. Um, the, the trips that I made over the course of the last couple of months were through New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and the Magdalen Islands. And um, I guess I'd start by saying that in some respects, farmers are farmers everywhere. Uh, they face a lot of the same kind of issues, a lot of the same problems. So there's a, a great amount of similarity uh, between the, the uh, shellfish farmers here in Maine and shellfish farmers in Atlantic Canada and certainly the rest of the U.S. Um, having said that, there were a couple of things that I, that I kind of came back with really noticing. And the first thing, was, which was actually, I think, a really good thing, is that Maine's shellfish farmers are a, a really professional, competent group of people. Um, they grow quality products that the market wants. They do it uh, with a great regard for the environment that they operate in. And by and large, they really are, their businesses are being sustained by good financial underpinnings, if you will. Um, even though the state doesn't have a huge amount of resources to lend towards the development of aquaculture industry, what it kind of creates is, if you will, sort of lean, mean businesses that really survive uh, because they're fundamentally strong. Um, I do see some opportunities uh, for sure with regard to uh, product diversification um, and uh, value-added opportunities. We could talk maybe a little bit about that uh, later on. Uh, and I think there's also some opportunities for just continuing to kind of uh, trade on the really spectacular reputation that Maine has for quality seafood. Um, I saw some very interesting operations with uh, oysters and scallops. Um, and took a trip out to the West Coast in the later part of the year where they practice aquaculture on an entirely different scale than we experience here. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that later on too. Great, thanks Dana. Um, before we turn to Adam, um, I thought maybe Sebastian, can you tell us a little bit about the differences between shellfish and finfish aquaculture? Sure. Um, they're, they're different in the sense that um, finfish, um, you are feeding uh, the animals, whereas in shellfish, they're actually grazing on the phytoplankton that occurs in the um, water column. Aside from that difference, um, they're actually a lot more similar than people realize. Um, and one of the interesting things I think that we see in Maine is um, certainly for many people, people have environmental concerns about finfish production and what what is happening in the environment around the farms. And by and large, the main finfish producers have really been leaders in dealing with those environmental concerns and those, those issues. Many of the things that the finfish folks um, have had to deal with, we now are seeing shellfish folks having to begin to, to deal with. And so what we have in Maine is a, this wonderful cross-pollination between the finfish and the shellfish community where people are learning from each other. One of the things which is quite different about our association than other aquaculture associations is that we do represent both shellfish and finfish. In many other places in the world, you have separate associations for that. And the big advantage, I think, of having a combined association is that those folks learn from each other and oftentimes don't have to reinvent the wheel. And so, um, Finfish is different than shellfish. Um, you're obviously dealing with um, fish instead of shellfish. Uh, you're dealing with an animal that moves, um, that swims around. Um, but um, there are probably a lot more similarities, I think, than there are differences. Great, thanks. Um, Adam, you are a commercial fisherman, and you have, I think, recently decided to venture into um, growing oysters. Maybe well, not so recently. Yeah, it's not recently. It's been actually, this is my 10th year anniversary. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And um, I took it on um, 10 years ago. Uh, I saw uh, uh, there was a column in one of the fishing, one in one of the fishing papers. And there was, a, it was by one of the DMR scientists. And they were doing um, uh, like a, some work on lobster settlement. And so they came out with this this kind of column, you know, and it said that there wasn't going to be, there was a bad settlement this one year. And Can you uh, explain what settlement means? Um, well, when lobsters, um, you know, a female lobster has eggs, and when those eggs hatch um, from the bottom, she, you know, they go into the water column, and then those eggs float for a certain amount of time, and then they um, settle out. They drop on bottom, and 
the baby lobsters go into the bottom. And um, so what the scientists do is they vacuum certain areas and they get a count and they've been doing it for a few years. And, and um, one day they went out there to, to vacuum the bottom and there wasn't any baby lobster. So made me nervous. So that's when I decided, you know, hey, maybe I better hedge my bets and start an oyster farm. And uh, so that's how I got started. And turns out that <clears throat> that was a one-year thing, and the lobster settlement after that would, has been great, and the lobster has been pretty good. So uh, it did help with the price of lobsters being so bad over the last year or two that um, <clears throat> the oyster farm backed me up financially. Whereas, because you still do both. Yes. You still, you still lobster. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Natalie, you know, um, Adam used a word, I think, which is probably a really important for people to understand, bed hedging. And that's really what a lot of this is about. Um, on working waterfronts, and we see in our, when we get calls and our membership um, begins to grow, I would say in the last five years, probably 75% of the people that have contacted us have been in the commercial fishing industry. And they're looking for a way to diversify their economic base. And they're looking for exactly the same reasons that Adam did, was to just, you know, when times are tough and you're, you're kind of all relying on one particular fishery, you want to spread yourself out a little bit and, and make sure that you've got some options there. And I know for Adam, it's worked pretty well. He's, he's, he's pretty happy about it, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long road. There's a lot of ups and downs. I've had, you know, years with the, with the oyster farm. You know, I've lost my whole crop for um, different reasons, uh, frozen in the ice. Uh -huh. So it, there's a big learning curve. And uh, there's not a manual out there that says this is how you grow oysters because every spot that um, on the coast of Maine is so varied where, you know, the different areas that you can grow oysters. So no one had a, a manual for me in my particular location. And I grow them in a little salt pond that's just in front of the house. And uh, so I did have a little bit of help. Um, you know, I asked around and, and uh, talked to a couple of different scientists, you know, local guys like Sam Chapman was a real good resource for me. And um, Dana um, was a big help. You know, if I asked for some, you know, information on gear, like different oyster gear, he'd, he'd email that to me, you know, and talk me through that. And uh, so it's, but I, I killed a lot of oysters before I ever got mm -hmm. to eat one. <laughs> Can you describe a little bit the, the physical structure of your farm? What does it look like? It's a, it's a tidal um, inlet. Um, and then there's a man-made dike that um, the, the land has actually been in my wife's family since the 1800s, early 1800s. And they built the dike to access the land on the other side. Um, so it created this small salt pond. It's, it's about, I think it's about 16 acres. And um, it's kind of it's kind of a neat story how it got started. The town had hired Sam Chapman to come out and figure out why our smelt runs had disappeared. We used to have a nice smelt run, and so he they hired him to come out and he he did a nice report on how to bring back smelts, which would be another show on that. But <laughs> they, they uh, so he he did this report, but he threw in for a bonus, you know, because uh, he went to all the streams around the whole island, and he went to that salt pond and that uh, that tidal inlet, and he said someone ought to try growing oysters here because the water temperature was warm, um, had a lot of phytoplankton, a lot of algae blooms there. And um, so it kind of st stuck in my back of my head, you know, that, hey, it's right in front of the house. And so one day, you know, or 10 years ago, on my birthday, I called up the hatchery down in southern Maine and said, um, hey, I'd like to order some oyster seed and got my first, I think it was, I think I got 3,000 oyster seed and got a couple of um, what they call mesh bags or floated ADPI bags and floated those in the in the pond and went and looked at them after I got to haul went got done hauling every week or two and flipped them and cleaned them and everything was going great and I said wow this is really cool you know and and then I went down one day and uh, the bags were all ripped open and <laughs> there's little uh, little footprints on bloody footprints on the rocks where the the coons had gone down and shredded the gear and ate the the two-inch oysters crunched them up, and, and I said, well, I guess I'll have to start over, you know. <laughs> so that was my first downfall. <laughs> but And then, the net, you know, there was a few bags I didn't get into, and those oysters did grow, and um, they were great. We ate them, you know, and great. gave them out to friends and stuff like that. So that's how it got started. Dana, um, Adam mentioned that every now and again he'd give you a call for some expertise or some suggestions. Um, can you t tell a little bit about what it is that you do to help people like Adam kind of get rolling? 
Uh, sure. Uh, the, one of the things that he said also, which was very important, was that every site is different. And so even though there's, uh, oh, I guess kind of a general approach that most people take, there's always going to be tweaks because you might have two coves in the same river uh, and they could have radically different conditions. Um, but by and large, the, the kind of stuff that I do ends up being um, a little bit of technical advice, sometimes uh, arranging educational or information opportunities or some kind of applied research. Uh, normally, the calls that I get, um, and I have to back up what uh, Sebastian said as well, that many of the calls that I've received over the past couple of years have been from fishermen looking to diversify a little bit. Um, a lot of it has to do with uh, siting and location, environmental requirements, mostly for oysters. They're in the in the shellfish world, they're relatively bomb-proof, so they're kind of easier to start with, um, but some with other species as well. So siting requirements and then uh, a little bit on the permitting and regulatory, but um, we have great resources at the state to be able to work with as well through the Department of Marine Resources. And then uh, a lot of gear types of questions, uh, how to set it up, where to get it, where to buy it, um, what do I do with the oysters over winter, for example? How do I design a system so I can get them out of the reach of ice and get them back in the springtime so that they can continue growing? Great. What do you do with them in the winter? Um, it depends. Yep. <laughs> it does uh, depend. Yeah. Yeah. How, how thick the ice is. Um, every winter in Maine can be different, right? Colder. Like the this winter's been mild. I mean, as far as sea ice, we have no sea ice. Um, last winter, um, I was using a four foot long chainsaw bar to get down through the ice to get at my oysters. Okay. So we had three feet of ice and now I have, I have, I've got four inches of ice. So big, big difference. And right. you have to plan for that. Yeah. Right. And fortunately, uh, oysters are fairly forgiving. Uh, you can either keep them on the bottom uh, in containment or out of containment in some kind of a box or a bag or something like that so you can kind of keep your herd under control as it will as it were um, but some work again that Sam Chapman and some other folks did uh, probably 20 odd years ago um, built on observations I think from settlers where you can keep an oyster alive in a refrigerator for months hmm. months and months um, and all, so, all winter. All winter. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you know that you're going to get ice in December, perhaps you'd like to put them in what they call moist air storage, which can be as simple as a pit in the ground that you insulate. And you can keep them there until I, you're ice-free again and then redeploy them. So there are a lot of ways to skin the cat, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. the, the guys down in, there's a lot of shellfish growers down in the Cape, and they, um, they have these long flats and they grow their oysters on these flats well in the winter time they ice up completely and and freeze so they take mo a lot of those guys will take all their crop their whole crop and dig a trench and bury the oysters in sand um you know up on the beach and they just stay cool they don't freeze you can't freeze them you know they can't go below freezing or else they will die but if you keep them moist keep them around 36 degrees um they'll last all winter and then they drag them back out put them back in the gear and and they start growing again how, how, how long uh, from settling out to becoming a, an old enough to be harvested? That's animal? where Maine is, is it's tough here okay. in Maine because we've got some really cold water. And um, <clears throat> down in the southern states, um, you know, they can grow oysters in, in 18 months. They can get a market-sized three-inch oyster or better. Um, and I think places on the Cape can do that too. And the fastest here in Maine that... <clears throat> For many of my friends that grow oysters, some of the other other farmers around, um, it's pretty much three years. Mm -hmm. You might get a, a handful of oysters in two, but it's it's really it's really three. The nice that you, Adam should uh, mention this though. The nice thing about that is that because our oysters grow so slow, and because we have such great water quality and such high phytoplankton content, and because our temperature doesn't get high enough for them to spawn most times we actually have a very high quality oyster. The main oyster is basically the highest quality oyster in the marketplace. It has a very high glycogen content in its meat, so it's very sweet. Mm -hmm. And because it doesn't hit a spawning uh, cycle, it never goes kind of mushy on you. So um, 
Maine oysters have become known as basically the best oysters in the marketplace. And um, it's a little bit longer to get them there, but, uh, <laughs> but they've got a great reputation from the, the foodies of the world and the oyster aficionados. Let's talk a little bit about the market. Who, who's, who is buying Maine oysters? Where are they going? To the best um, white tablecloth restaurants uh-huh. all around the country. Okay. As far as, you know, California. Yeah, they, they love them. We, we definitely, uh, one of the challenges we have as a state is we can't grow enough for the demand. Um, and so um, we have to think about as we kind of go forward from the state point of view and as working waterfronts come under increasing pressure from fisheries rollbacks or, you know, buyout programs on boats and stuff like that. One of the things I think we have to think of as a state is how much area are we willing to to try and dedicate to aquaculture so that we can give folks an alternative? And um, right now, you know, we can't grow anywhere near enough of what we can't grow enough. We can't grow enough oysters. We can't grow enough mussels. We can't grow enough salmon. Uh, everything uh, sells fast and hard and at a premium uh, coming out of Maine, and, and that's that's a challenge. And um, Sebastian, you mentioned the the farm gate value of the main industry is, uh, could you repeat that again, what that was about? It, it varies from year to year, and part of it is because as growers, one of the things that makes main growers differently, and this is particularly true on the finfish side of things, is we've gone to, we basically went and took a page out of the organic farming uh, textbook. We now do what's called site rotation and fallowing. So depending on which farm is in operation on any given year, that value can go up and down depending on what the yield is from that farm. But on, on any given year, we vary between, say, 75 and $100 million mm-hmm. as farm gate value. Thanks. So for that... <coughs> so just to clarify, that's for all aquaculture. That's for all aquaculture. All that's, that's for Great, all, all combined. Yeah. yeah. And so for that 75 to $100 million... Um, it occupies, relatively speaking, a minuscule portion of the main coastline from the shoreline out to three miles. Uh, I know the MAA calculated it earlier. MAA is the Maine, Maine Aquaculture, Aquaculture Association. Association. But the total leased acreage in Maine state waters is, I think, around 1,400 acres right about 13, now. 1,300 acres. Okay. Um, and so that constitutes a fraction of a, of a single percent of the state's water. So for taking up relatively little space... Uh, there's a good number of jobs and certainly a good value of the product. So it's kind of a, a really efficient use of space, if you will. It's interesting. If you if you look at it as an agricultural product and you look at it on a per acre basis value, oysters and salmon are the two most valuable agricultural products we grow in the state by mm. far. Um, the, the nearest uh, in terms of value would be horticultural um, crops. But uh, salmon is around eighty to ninety thousand dollars an acre, and oysters are around twenty thousand dollars an acre. So, um, it's pretty hard to come close to that with an agricultural product. <clears throat> well, I, I've got a twenty-acre lease, and I don't make twenty thousand an acre <laughs> <laughs> on any given year. <laughs> so, it, how how long has that, how long did it take you, to Adam, to um, go from growing a few that you could have for your family's consumption to turning it into a commercial profit? Well, we we started with a, an experimental lease. And that was, um, which is, if I had to do over again, I just would have went for a commercial lease to, to begin with. Can, can you also tell us a little bit about the leasing process? Oh, I, I can try. It's been 10 years since okay. I did it, right? But um, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> you, um, you, you, all, everyone within 1,000 feet of your proposed lease has to be notified that you want to grow oysters there. In my case, they were all my neighbors who I knew. So I approached them first and, and said, hey, I'd like to grow oysters in the pond, you know, do you guys, is that okay, you know, do you, and um, they all were for it. I actually, my neighbor that actually looks at my site more than anyone, um, he looks right at it, his house sits right there on the pond, and he um, went over his house, and we were sitting on his uh, on his front porch, and I looked down at his view, and I'm like, I guess I'm not going to grow oysters, you know, because you're going to have to look at this whole thing, and he pounded his hand on the table and he says, I say, let the oysters grow. <laughs> and I think every once in a while he's, he's wishing he didn't do it, but the, for the most part, he, he enjoys it, you know. And uh, the neat thing about that pond where, I, where I'm growing in is the water was, the water quality was not good when I started. And, and it wasn't tested ever. To the state, it wasn't part of their monitoring, you know, um, schedule. So when I started growing oysters there, then we knew, then we started testing the water and found out it wasn't clean. And there were some malfunctioning septic systems all around there. 
And um, so those all had to be fixed before we could, you know, eat any oysters out of that, mm -hmm. out of that pond. So um, it was actually seven septic systems, and they they're all replaced, and the water's you know, pristine and wow. testing great. So it's a good thing if someone's growing oysters around around your house or down on the shore where you live and work and play, because if you can eat oysters out of it, it's clean. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's pristine mm -hmm. right? water. We actually, you know, as an association, we spend a lot of time in the legislature lobbying for Clean Water Act bills. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, just last week, in fact, I was in there lobbying for um, a bill that would eliminate overboard discharges in the state. So, um, and we've been pretty successful so far. We often join forces with folks like the Casco Bay uh, Baykeeper, uh, Joe, and um, some of the other environmental groups in the state to try and get those um, bills through because uh, whether it's uh, an oyster or a mussel or a salmon or a halibut, um, clean water is our stock and trade. If we don't have clean water, we can't grow food. That's it. That's just support. it. And if anyone you know wants to know what their water quality looks like, they can go to their uh, town office and they'll have a map from the DMR that shows open areas and closed areas. And um, you know, obviously, the closed areas will be in red, and and so you'll know where you can harvest a clam or or a mussel on the shore and where it's safe and where it's not safe. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's important that you do that. <laughs> uh, for listeners who are just tuning in, you're listening to Talk of the Towns on WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill. And um, we'd like to open this up for our listeners to call in. If any of you have questions or comments for our our uh, guests here in the studio. In the studio with us, we have Dana Morris from University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Maine Sea Grant. We have Adam Campbell, who is a commercial fisherman who ventured into growing oysters through the North Haven Oyster Company about 10 years ago. And we have Sebastian Bell, who directs the Maine Aquaculture Association, representing all manner of aquaculture farmers here in the state. Our number, if you want to call in, um, is one 866 Six two five nine three seven eight. That's one eight six 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 two five W E R U. Um, so please feel free to call in and make questions or comments. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to talk a little bit about scale, um, sort of large scale versus small scale, um, and and maybe we can ask uh, one of you guys um, to comment a little bit on sort of the variety of the kinds of operations that you might see out there. Sebastian, you want to give a sure. Um, I, I think certainly one of the obvious differences, at least right now, between finfish and shellfish is that the finfish operations tend to be larger scale than the shellfish operations. That I think is actually going to change, um, and in part because uh, of some work that's going on around the uh, cod as a species. Um, but we have every size of operation in the state. We have um, all the way from a tiny little uh, kind of postage stamp um, outfit to um, farms that have multiple sites and, and, and manage those um, in a coordinated fashion. So that's another way that Maine is a little bit unusual, I think, particularly if you compare us to some of the other producing states around the country. Um, they tend to have... Um, for example, in the Gulf Coast or on the West Coast, their their shellfish operations tend to be pretty big shellfish operations um, compared to our operations here. Our, ours tend to be uh, really smaller operations. Um, and um, there, sometimes scale is a, you know, small scale is a good thing because you're it's, a, it's easier to get into it and uh, there's less of a barrier to entry. And then there are disadvantages of being small scale too. Sometimes it's hard to compete um, to have enough product to supply on a regular basis. Um, maybe it's hard from a cost point of view. You know, you may be able to uh, not have the economies of scale that some of the bigger producers do. So there's pluses and minuses to, to both. I think the one thing that from our point of view is the association, from a growers association, the one thing that we stress with everybody is that the scale of the operation has to be appropriate for the site and the bay that it's in. It has to be relative to where you're operating. And if it's not, um, you run into difficulties. You run into difficulties with either people being concerned about it or um, having unintended environmental impacts. And so the issue of scale is always site-specific from my perspective. And Dana, I think, talked a little bit about this earlier about, you know, how each site is different. Um, if you exceed the scale which is good for that site, then you exceed what we would call the carrying capacity of that site. And that's where you, you get yourself into, into trouble. 
Anything to add on that, Dana? Um, yeah, the um, <coughs> I don't deal very much with the finfish industry, so pretty much I uh, deal with uh, oyster growers or mussel growers. Um, one of the things it's it's kind of a uh, kind of a linked topic, I suppose. But one of the things that I've found in terms of working with people who are coming out of the fishing industry or have a foot in both worlds is that that scaling issue and that fitting in with other uses issue seems to be easier because these are folks who work on the water every day. They know about the tides. They know about the bottom. They know the animals that come and go there. They also know about who's fishing where uh, and all the things that you notice when you're making your living on the water. Um, and so it has just seemed that people from the fishing industry have a better sense uh, intrinsically of, of what might fit here. And, and from, the, from the use perspective, from the biological perspective, and uh, the getting along perspective as well. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Um, it's, it seems like over the years, um, we've heard uh, a lot related to, um, oh, it looks like we have a caller. Um, why don't we go ahead and, and take that call? Um, if we could have you state your name, your first name, where you're from, and um, just go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, I'm Jim from Burnham. I just have a quick question. In your intro, you mentioned uh, that the aquaculture also included freshwater. I'm just curious to know uh, what's going on. Is it in rivers, ponds, or and what, what exactly is being raised? Yeah. Great. Thanks for your call. We'll go ahead and um, pass that right over to Sebastian. Thank you. Hello, Jim. Uh, thanks for your question. Um, principally, we have two kinds of freshwater aquaculture that happen in the state. One is people who grow uh, trout so that uh, people can stock them in their uh, farm ponds, in their local ponds. So there are a couple of trout farms that will sell small trout finglings to the local soil extension um, folks, and they get distributed all around the state for stocking in private ponds. And then the other um, freshwater aquaculture we have, and it's really one of our better kept secrets, um, is a freshwater uh, bait fish. And um, I remember Adam was talking about smelt earlier. We, we are privileged in this state to have a guy um, who was one of the first people in the world to close the life cycle on the uh, smelt. And uh, his name is John Whalen. He runs a farm called Harmon Brook Farm. Um, he now produces uh, smelt all the way through the egg and the hatching stage. Um, and is, is one of the few people in the world to be able to do that. Um, that those bait fish are then sold to the um, ice fishing community during the winter as uh, bait for ice fishing. And um, it's, a, it's a part of, of the aquaculture um, sector in the state, which is growing uh, you know, pretty steadily every year because it's a great market for ice fishing bait. Is, is uh, freshwater aquaculture much newer, would you say, here in Maine? And how, how does it compare to other parts of the country? Actually, it's, it's older. Um, okay. We had, um, you know, we've had hatcheries in the state. There are obviously um, state and federal hatcheries um, that have been in charge of growing fish for stocking out for recreational fishing. Uh, we've had hatcheries in the state for over 100 years. Um, but um, it's, it's never really taken off on the kind of commercial side of things until relatively recently. So it's only within, I would say, the last 10 or 15 years that we've started to have commercial freshwater farms. The, the, the water quality regulations in the state are probably the strictest in the, in the country, at least. Um, and so part of the challenge we have is finding places where we can build hatcheries um, and still meet the water quality regulations. The regulations are written in such a way that if you um, are taking water into your hatchery and it, um, it has, let's say, high phosphorus levels in it, maybe from agriculture around or something like that, uh, before you discharge that water, you actually have to decrease the amount of phosphorus below levels that were coming into your hatchery. So you're actually basically acting as a wastewater treatment plant um, mm. instead of a hatchery. <laughs> and so that makes it really difficult for people to find places to um, and to get licenses to, to, to operate. But um, aside from that challenge, um, Maine as a state has the best freshwater resources of any state east of the Mississippi. Um, and so it's got mm -hmm. tremendous potential, mm -hmm. um, even though we have tough winters here and ice gets a little thick as Adam alluded <laughs> <Yeah>. to. <laughs> uh, but as although, a, although this winter has been great. Yeah. <laughs> and as, a, as an ice fisherman myself, I use my share of, of fishing bait and it's nice. Uh, 
I'm not sure of the, the legal aspects of it, but it's nice to have a local product as opposed to product that's uh, imported from some distance. So that has to do with biosecurity and, and uh, uh, fish health and diseases and things. You mentioned biosecurity. What is, what is that? Uh, biosecurity essentially boils down to making sure that you don't transfer pathogens or diseases from one place to another. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something that virtually all aquaculturists think about because uh, it's a farming operation like uh, like any other kind of farming operation, and you want healthy animals. Right. The, the, the freshwater bait industry was um, one of the places that drove our fish health regulations in the state. And um, so we actually have probably the strictest fish health regulations in the country. Um, and and uh, an effect of that is it really is almost impossible for somebody to meet the fish health regulations and import bait from out of state. What that means is that we make it very difficult for any new diseases to come in, as, as Dana uh, alludes to. It also means that we oftentimes don't have the kinds of issues with uh, invasive species that other states have with bait being moved around from state to state. And, you know, it's hard if you have a tractor tr truckload of, of bait fish and there's a little bit of weed mixed up with it and, and there's, you know, 100,000 fish in there. You're not going to go through every one to find out whether it's a native or non-native. So by having very strict regulations and pretty much preventing importation. That's really protected our freshwater resources in the state. Great. Um, just wanted to remind callers that you're welcome to call in. Our number is 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-WERU. And I think we have a caller on the line right now. If you want to go ahead and mention your first name, where you're calling from, and go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, yes, my name's Mariah, and I'm in Liberty, and I am curious. Um, my partner and I were kayaking up in Lubeck Harbor um, this past September, and we came upon these fish pens, I guess they're called, and there was a really strong odor of, it seemed like, dead fish, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, what, what would cause that, and is that the norm, or is that an, an error? Sure. Um, well, it's it's difficult to know exactly what you were seeing or smelling, but, um, you know, like anything on the working waterfront, um, sometimes things get a little stinky. Um, <laughs> typically what it is is when we, um, we, we clean our nets and we dry them up, and when you dry the nets up, um, there's oftentimes growth on the nets, um, seaweed and stuff like that, and when that gets hit by the sun – it creates a really strong kind of fishy smell, if you will. Um, and so um, particularly when you're close to a farm like that, you can, you can smell that pretty distinctly. Um, it's, it's the same with lobster traps. Like my yeah. wife hates it when I bring my traps home in the fall. Yeah. We put them up, you know, outside the house, and, and they smell for about a week, maybe two. <laughs> so that's that, that's my guess um what you were smelling that you know if we have um if we do find a dead fish on the farm because of our biosecurity practices and and Maine salmon farmers were actually the first salmon farmers um in the world to do what's called external biosecurity security auditing so we have um in cooperation with University of Maine in 1992, I think, um, we started having a vet come on our, all our farms and audit our farms. So they show up unannounced and they go through and inspect everything on the on the farm. And that's in addition to the regulations that we have to comply with. Um, but um, part of those biosecurity audits require that if you find a, a fish which is sick, you take it out of the water and you put it in a, a closed container um, or if you, um, you know, if we do a regular dive in the cage to look and see how the fish are doing in the cage, if we find a fish which is, uh, which has died, um, again we pull it out of the water and put it in a basically a sealed tub, and then those, those fish um, go typically to composting operations. And if you ever go along the coast and you go to like a landscape uh, center and you see uh, coast of Maine uh, compost, um, sometimes that's um, including uh, composted uh, either processing waste or occasionally it might include some uh, of the, the morts from the farms. Well, thank you so much for the program, and I appreciate the information. That was just really an eerie and disturbing feeling to be there, and to, it just it, 
I've I've smelled um, um, the kind of smell that you're describing. It didn't seem like it was that, but uh, you know, I certainly don't know, and I could be totally mistaken. But the, thank you so much for all the work you're doing. I really appreciate it. Mariah, you know what I would suggest to you, and I say this to anybody who has questions about it, is that we, I think a lot of times people have questions about what's going on on farms, and um, if they don't have an answer to it or they don't know that sometimes they they think about stuff which, you know, is a little bit scary. And I just encourage everybody, go up and talk to the farmer. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're local folks, and... Um, Nine times out of ten, they'll take the time out to stop and answer your questions. And um, we almost always hear back from people who say, wow, that was really great. Thank you so much for that. And, and that now we really kind of understand what's going on. Great. It's, I would never have thought of that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your call, Mariah. That's actually one of my favorite things to do is is talk about growing oysters. Yeah. Because that means I'm not bending over, breaking my back, moving them around. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good break. <laughs> Great. Um, so one of the things that we've kind of alluded to without being real specific, um, but I'll jump right in. Um, the, um, over the course of the, I would say, the last decade through the media, um, we hear a lot of controversial sort of perspectives on aquaculture. And um, I, I would like to hear hear from each of you a little bit about what are the concerns that you hear. We just heard Mariah mention one concern, which was that's one particular farm at, on one particular day didn't smell very good. Um, what are some of the other concerns that you're hearing, either about shellfish or or finned fish? And um, how do you respond to those concerns? Do you feel that they're, um, you know, are they legitimate concerns? And if they are legitimate concerns, how how is the industry working to mitigate them? Maybe we'll start with Dana. Okay. Um, I guess the most uh, common thing that I hear is competition for space. Uh, again, mostly related to shellfish farming. Um, uh, for example, if there is uh, uh, an oyster farm using floating gear, then maybe that takes that chunk of land out of um, scallop dragging production or lobster fishing or something like that. Not necessarily, but uh, frequently. Uh, and so the, the use of space along the coast, uh, which is going up every year, uh, is a common issue, and, and the um, it's a real one, but we also have had, I think, some pretty good success over the, especially over the last five years or so, where um, the people who are looking to develop a new farm do a good job of talking with the neighbors, the fishermen who fish on the water, the people who own the homes along the shore, the kayaking companies that might be fishing through there or, or fishing guides, and so the I would say the number of uh, complaints or difficulties over recent years has gone down because I think the lesson learned was do your homework when you're siting your farm. And this includes obviously the biological requirements, but do your homework when you're siting your farm. And I won't say it will be trouble free, but it is much, much easier if you do your, uh, do your legwork well ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Great. I, you know, from the association's point of view, Natalie, this is this is probably one of the things that we spend the most time on. Um, and I, I think before talking about specifics, I just want to start by saying that, you know, everything we do as human beings has an impact. Um, you mow your lawn, um, you cut firewood, um, you eat food that comes off a farm that used to be forest, which is now fields. Um, and aquaculture is no different than, than uh, that. But what we have learned um, over the years, and I, I will say, I think one of the mistakes that aquaculture in the state of Maine made was they weren't willing to admit that they had made mistakes. Um, and so many times in the early years, we would make mistakes because we were learning as we were going. Adam was talking about it's learning big, as he's going. You know, yeah, it's, 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 it's tough. You make mistakes. Um, but um, one thing is pretty clear. If you don't learn from your mistakes, you don't stay in business, and it's just that simple. And, <laughs> and we've seen guys go out of business. We have. We've I've, seen a lot of guys. I've seen out. some yeah. really, really smart mm -hmm. and hardworking fellas, you know, try and do an oyster farm, and they, you know, they just screwed up one too many times, and it just folded yeah. up on them. It's it is a very unforgiving business, and I and particularly because you're you're trying to shepherd live animals in a harsh environment that changes every year. And so 
um, as farmers, um, you know, we do we do make mistakes. We do have uh, environmental impacts sometimes. But the, what we really, I think, have learned is that we've got to learn from those mistakes, and then we've got to strive to reduce our environmental uh, footprint as much as we can because it's in our own self-interest. It means that our animals do better, they grow better, they're healthier, um, and we're, and our farm is more predictable on a year-to-year basis. And so, you know, you hear particularly, I think a lot of the controversy has been around finfish. You hear about um, escape fish or diseases mm-hmm. or uh, nutrients coming from the farms. And if you look at the way that uh, we farm today versus when we were farming 30 years ago. It's radically different, um, and it's different than other countries. You hear a lot of what you hear about is um, you know horror stories from other countries um, where there are no environmental regulations or um, where there's no uh, environmental community to ask hard questions, um, and that's frustrating for us as farmers in Maine because we get painted with the same uh, brush. But if you actually look at um, you know, we were the first farmers in the world to come out with a code of practice. Um, we then went on and had that begun to be third-party audited. Um, we've got uh, the current salmon farm we have in the state right now, Cook Aquaculture. They're the first salmon farm in the world to be eco-certified by a European certification agency. Uh, very, It took them four years to get that certification. Um, they had to change a lot of what they were doing mm-hmm. to, to, to qualify for that. That certification, they could lose at any time if they if they have an audit that goes in and finds something wrong. Is that is that the certification that's similar to the to what the fishermen have to go through? In term, what are the, some of the hoops that they have to go through to get it? Oh, it's it's actually um, well the, the the certification system you're thinking about for fishermen is probably the um, Marine Stewardship yeah. Council. Yeah, mm-hmm. Marine Stewardship Council doesn't certify any aquaculture okay. operations. They've made a policy decision not to do that because they have kind of a different group which is focusing on aquaculture. But um, it, it's similar in the sense that you have to comply with a minimum set of standards, and then you get audited uh, to verify that you're being that you're complying with that. All of that is on top of all the environmental regulations we have. And Maine, uh, and I think, you know, talk to the regulators, um, but um, if you talk to, if I compare notes with my colleagues who operate in a different part of the world, they all are amazed at the environmental regulations we have to comply with. We have very, very exhaustive uh, environmental sampling and and, uh, videotaping and all sorts of um, things that uh, the state does to make sure that we're complying with the environmental regulations we have to uh, comply with. So you've got, on the one hand, you've got the regulations. They're kind of the groundwork. And then you've got all this best management practice on top of that that the growers have designed themselves. And then that's externally audited to make mm-hmm. sure that they're doing what they should be doing to do with the, the BMP stuff. Um, and it's to the point now where a lot of the BMPs, particularly BMPs on the is best, best management. management practice. Sorry, thank you. Um, a lot of them that have been developed in Maine are now being copied by other uh, areas in the world. We quite often have people come from other producing areas and they want to look at our BMPs and they want to mm-hmm. go visit the farm. And uh, it's the point now where we've actually moved to copyright all our our, our management mm-hmm. protocols because we realize that it's an advantage. We've got an advantage uh, from an environmental management point of view, and uh, we want to try and protect that. Mm-hmm. We want to link that to the main brand so that people recognize that um, aquaculture products coming out of Maine not only are high quality, but they're compliant with this very high environmental management standard. Mm-hmm. Adam, what's been what's been your experience? You mentioned your neighbors. Um, mm-hmm. Have you had, had any sort of interaction with other folks who might have an opinion either for or against what you're I, doing? I was really lucky, and mm-hmm. I, I, um, talking with Dana, you know, um, I guess I'm the exception, but all my neighbors were for mm-hmm. me growing oysters, and um, you know, they, they're, they're environmentalists, most of them, and they, and they understand that an oyster takes a pristine environment to grow in. Yeah. Um, one of the situations with that dike, it not being tested and not being utilized for any kind of shellfish harvesting or any clamming or anything like that, was um, these huge algae blooms would, would appear in the summer months, um, create this thick sludge of dead algae, Mm-hmm. The southwest wind would blow it up against the dike, which is the basically the driveway to these couple summer homes across the way, and they'd have to roll their windows up to cross the mm-hmm. dike. It just stunk so bad. So, um, and the visibility—it's about five, six feet deep there. Um, when I first started, it was zero. You couldn't see 
two feet down. It, actually, when uh, John Lewis uh, came out, to, they do a videotape of the bottom before the lease, and you know, and he, that, that's from Department of Marine Resources, yep, right? Yep. He yep. came out, and um, so they do a site review, and he jumped overboard, and um, he's wearing these neon fins and five feet of water, and I couldn't see him. Mm -hmm. um, so, <laughs> but now. Um, after, you know, we, I've got a, there's a, there's an oyster bed there around the edges of the pond. The center is actually, uh, I leave that fallow and that's kind of what I use to regenerate the, the algae. So, I, you know, the whole thing isn't boogered with oysters. It's just the edges is what I use. And, um, now with the water's crystal clear, um, there's juvenile herring that come in there in the, in the summer. There's, um, smelt, smelt run. There's eelgrass where there never was before. Um, and birds and wildlife and, and, you know, it's a, it's a thriving little ecosystem mm -hmm. where before it was, it was a mess, really. That's a, that's a side to the aquaculture conversation that you don't hear very much in the popular media. So it's, yeah. it's great to hear. That's true. There's, there's yeah. actually been some really interesting research, um, certainly down in Connecticut, but there's been some research in, in other countries as well, looking at how aquaculture farms act as habitat mm -hmm. for, uh, native species. And, um, you know, they're basically like artificial reefs. It establishes structure and attracts little stuff in, and then the big stuff come in to eat the little stuff, and mm -hmm. it's a whole ecosystem mm -hmm. that gets created there. This is a little bit of a digression, but I think a, an interesting one um, concerning the role of shellfish as, as water cleaners, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, just recently, they had a workshop down in Rhode Island to talk about the role of shellfish in keeping water clean, and one of the really to me, just blows my mind, studies came from Sweden, where there was a town that had a traditional water quality, uh, like a water treatment plant. And they paid so much per ton of nitrogen released into the water, and they calculated that out. Well, they decided that they would try using mussels, a mussel farm, which incorporate waste products like nitrogen and phosphorus into their shells and the mussels and stuff. Uh, to do part of the work instead of the wastewater treatment plant. Well, to cut to the chase, Mussels, for the dollar value, do a much better job mm. of cleaning the water of these waste products uh, on a per ton basis. And then at the end of the day, you have a product which um, in this experiment they fed to chickens, which they loved. It was a, mm -hmm. it was a safe product for chicken feed. Um, or you can use it as a composted product. Um, there's a, you get a potentially useful product out of the end of the pipe, if you will, out of the end of the process. And so there are different ways to think about aquaculture in general, more than just food. Mm -hmm. uh, Sebastian mentioned mm -hmm. um, fee fishing, there are ornamental fish. And so th there are some pretty exciting opportunities there to think differently. Great, great, thanks. Um, we do have a caller on the line. Um, for those who are still interested in calling, we still have a few minutes. It's one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. 625 Let's go ahead and hear from our caller. If you wanted to state your first name and where you're from, and um, then you can go ahead with your question or comment. Thanks. Um, yeah, hi. My name's Valerie, and I'm from China. Um, I actually appreciate this information. It's very helpful. But one of the things that I've heard about the aquaculture salmon uh, in particular is that the food um, that they are fed is not organic. So I just wanted to see if someone could address that and tell us what exactly um, salmon farm raised salmon does uh, get in the way of, uh, of food. Okay, Great. thank you very much. Thank you, Valerie. Great question. I think we'll hear from Sebastian on that. Yeah, sure. Um, Hello, Valerie, and thank you for your question. Um, so there's a couple things, and it, it gets a little complicated, but in the United States, um, we currently don't have organic standards for aquatic animals, and I actually sit on uh, a national um, board that's um, trying to develop some technical standards for that with a bunch of folks from academia and the environmental community. Uh, until we have those national standards, um, it's 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 basically impossible for anybody to produce an organic food um, because you, you've got no standards to produce against. But what we currently use in, in the fish foods, and it, it varies depending on whether it's a, a salmon, a cod, or a halibut, and it also varies depending on how big they are, whether they're tiny little ones or whether they're bigger, um, you know, close to market size. It's typically a mix of fish meal and fish oil uh, might have some uh, soybean uh, oil in it as well, or soybean meal, 
a little bit of wheat gluten sometimes, although not always. Gluten is a, is a tough one. It's, it's sometimes it's not a great thing to have in your feed. Sometimes it is a good thing because it's a binder. Um, and then a lot of times uh, we'll have a vitamin pack, which is just basically a, a series of different vitamins. They do sometimes include um, an artificial uh, pigment. It's called uh, uh, canthazanthin, which is a, it's basically um, a nutritional supplement that the fish can't produce itself, and so they have to have it in the feed. And, uh, and um, then we'll also have, sometimes we have uh, shrimp um, shells that are ground up, and that, that's what the, f uh, the fish um, use to get the color in the fish as well. So it's a mixture of stuff, um, and um, it's very similar to how you would fabricate uh, any sort of animal feed. The one thing which is different about fish than, for example, a land mammal or something like that is um, they typically can't digest carbohydrates, so we actually have to cook the carbohydrate that goes into the feed. So anything like a soy uh, meal or uh, a wheat product or a corn product actually has to go through steam extrusion to cook the carbohydrates so they can digest it. And then the other thing, obviously, is um, when we feed our fish, uh, we want to get the most efficient conversion rate out of that um, out of that feed, and what that means is the amount of feed you put in versus the amount of meat you put on the on the on the animal. When I first started uh, farming years ago, we had conversion <laughs> ratios of you know 15 to one. That would mean you'd have to f um, feed 15 pounds of feed to get one pound of of, of flesh. We're now down on a, a well-run uh, salmon farm. It's about 1.1 to one, so it's a very efficient um, conversion ratio. And you compare that to poultry or Pigs, for example, and poultry are probably about six to one, five to one. Pigs are uh, a little bit higher. That beef is way higher than that. So it's uh, it's a pretty efficient way to produce food. Great, thanks, Sebastian. Um, we just have a couple minutes left, and I think that we have a caller who's got a quick question. So we'll go quickly to the caller, and then um, I think we'll be working towards wrapping up. So um, if you want to go ahead and give us your first name and uh, tell us where you're from, and then we'd love to hear your question. Yes, yeah, so Sam, and I'm an urchin diver, and there was uh, um, a chemical in some of the feed that they were feeding the salmon down east that um, Japan threatened to shut the whole coast down because of this chemical that was in the feed that they were feeding salmon. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, I do, Sam. I was at the Urchin Council a couple months ago, and uh, thank you for your call. Um, there it, one of the ingredients that um, we have used in the past was uh, an ingredient called canthazanthin, which is this, uh, this pigment I was telling you about. And uh, Japan has a regulation on the limits in, on, that are allowable in uh, urchin. The reason they have that regulation is because um, people were actually intentionally feeding that chemical to urchins to color up the eggs. Um, and so the the Japanese government said that that was an artificial manipulation of what um, urchin row looked like, and so they passed this law. Well, obviously, uh, urchin divers were concerned about whether or not that would come from the salmon farm to the urchins, and so we did a bunch of tests. Uh, DMR did a bunch of tests, and um, they talked about it at the council, and basically, um, and feel free to, to call DMR about it, but they came to the conclusion that um, there was a fair amount of saber rattling there and there wasn't any data to really support it. Great, thanks. Um, well, we've come to that time when I'd like to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks to our guests in the studio, Dana Morse from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program and Cooperative Extension, Adam Campbell, North Haven Oyster Company and a commercial fisherman, and Sebastian Bell from the Maine Aquaculture Association. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your comments and experiences and questions. Special thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. Ron Beard will be back next month. This is Natalie Springle from University of Maine Sea Grant Program, your guest host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.
Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, for 25 years partnering with donors and nonprofits and communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships, on the web at maincf.org.